0: Thank you Tony let's pray. Lord we've asked you to speak to us and we've asked that by your spirit we will be enabled to hear what you say. We pray that prayer again as we turn to reflect on your word. Amen. The first words uh, of Jesus recorded in Mark's gospel are these and it's almost like a text you know how rarely I preach to a text as such. The kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. The first recorded words of Jesus in Mark. The kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven if you're in Matthew's gospel, is the central theme of Jesus' teaching recorded in all four gospels. So I thought this morning that we'd spend a little time reflecting on the nature of the kingdom of God. First, I want you to notice that it is God's kingdom, not ours. When the disciples ask Jesus, how shall we pray? And we've prayed the prayer he suggests in way of response. He doesn't tell them to say, our kingdom come or my kingdom come. It's your God kingdom come. And anybody who seeks to be Christ's follower needs to know and recognize that simple but profoundly important fact. It's obvious. It's God's kingdom. But taking that fact seriously in various areas of our life together and our spiritual life is actually very important. I want to look at two or three examples of that. It means that the church is God's kingdom community. In other words, if the kingdom is God's, it means that the church is God's kingdom community. So when the church worships, it's been a kingdom community. Of course it is. No Christian community can be a kingdom community if it doesn't worship. When it's breaking bread, as we'll do next week, it's been a kingdom community because it's doing what Jesus, its Lord, told it to do. When it's proclaiming the gospel of grace or proclaiming mercy or pursuing justice, it's been a a, a kingdom community, etc. But there's a danger. The danger is this. Church as we know it and kingdom as we don't yet fully know it, become interchangeable in our thinking. What I mean is that we begin to think that church as we run it, as we belong to it, as we attend it, is the kingdom of God, which is the wrong way around. If Christ's church, you see, is not being and doing the things of the kingdom of God, God doesn't turn around and say, uh, okay everybody, I'll rethink what my kingdom is. What God says is, you pray to me your kingdom come, then you run a community that bears no relationship to how I want it to be. Down the centuries, there's been a constant tussle between the life and tradition of the church and what's proclaimed as the kingdom of God. The 19th century theologian Albert Loisy famously lamented, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom and what arrived was the church. So attending church and belonging to a church can too readily be assumed to be living in the kingdom. When in fact it might not be. Let me use a, 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 very, uh, a very direct example to us. Please don't listen to criticism, that's not why I'm mentioning this. In the course of the last eight, nine months, we have refurbished both our fellowship room, the Emmanuel room at the back of the church, And at considerable cost, our chapel downstairs. And it's beautiful. And some of you have given sacrificially to make sure that that's been enabled to happen. They're lovely spaces. But they haven't of themselves brought the kingdom of God any nearer or any more fully until what goes on in them glorifies and proclaims and embodies the purposes of the kingdom of God. Until that happens they're beautiful spaces. John Wesley once famously said I regard the whole world as my parish. Uh, he was being a bit naughty because he was saying it in response to an Anglican bishop in Exeter who basically was forbidding him from being in any of the parish churches of Devon. And uh, in typical non compliance with any kind of Anglican authority whatsoever, John Wesley turned around and said, You might think you're the bishop of these hundreds of churches in Exeter, but I regard the whole world as my parish. In other words, I'll preach where I want. But Christians who love, listen, their church too much in a kind of protective way, in a way that suggests it's ours, that we own it, that our church must do what we want it to do and how we want to do it otherwise we don't really want to belong to it anymore, act and fall into the temptation that they perish, the church is our whole world and the person who acts as the parish is the whole world hasn't grasped the basic nature of the kingdom of God. Don't get me wrong, the local church is a great blessing, this church is a great blessing to many of us, but it's not the whole focus and content of the kingdom of God. It's, if you like, it's a fueling station for the kingdom of God. And Christian disciples are required to undertake the kingdom test every so often in their life, whether it's in the business of the church council or the business of their own devotions. It's a bit like you periodically have your blood pressure taken. What's the kingdom test? How healthy are we? Otherwise, almost inadvertently, a go-to outward faith becomes a come-to, inward church. And at that point, we part company with the profound nature of the kingdom of God. So the first rule of the kingdom of God is that it's God's, not ours. And that means, therefore, the church belongs to God. And it isn't ours. Even though many of its trappings and beauty and grandeur has been entrusted to us. And therefore, moving on in our thoughts, if the kingdom is God's, God chooses who is admitted to the kingdom and on what basis? Well, listen to that because it's very important. If the kingdom of God is God's and not first and foremost ours, then it's God who chooses who's admitted to the kingdom and on what basis? Now. Our text, if that's what it is, tells us the basis. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God and said, repent and believe the good news. Do you know that only the kingdom of God runs on righteousness? All other kingdoms run on oil or military might or subjugation or exploitation or hedonism or wealth creation. Only God's kingdom runs on righteousness, the righteousness of God. It's the word used nearly a dozen times in the Beatitudes. Last week while Peter was preaching, uh, a member of the congregation asked us to be more clear about what happens when people reject Christ. People who don't repent or believe. And I thought I'd tackle that this morning just for a minute. The New Testament is clear that such people place themselves in darkness, choosing not to receive the light that God offers to all people. They place themselves outside God's desire and will for them. The New Testament says that if we don't receive and honour Jesus in this life, we will not be received and honoured in the next, and so on and so forth. But the problem with preaching what used to be called hellfire and damnation is not that is that it is not itself what Jesus Christ or his church primarily teaches. Jesus primarily teaches the kingdom of God. I may have told you before of a a conversation I had many years ago with an American preacher at Easter People. But in the context of this sermon again, it bears repeating He was a Baptist from a large denomination in America, and there's no problem we've been a Baptist in a large denomination in America. And we were sitting in the bar after I'd preached that evening and he preached the previous evening, and we were just chatting. And then, almost out of nothing, he turned to me, he said, Martin, I I guess you Methodists really want people to go to heaven, don't you? And I was completely thrown by this sentence. So I said... uh, Yeah, yeah, of course. Don't all Christians? And he gave a big sigh and he said, yeah, I guess. He said, but my church seems to spend more time telling people what happens if they don't get to heaven. Now Jesus Christ in his teaching doesn't spend more time telling people what happens if they don't get to heaven. He spends nearly all his time talking about the kingdom of God and inviting people to be people of the kingdom. Do you see? It's not a case of whether you believe in hell or not any more than whether you believe in heaven or not. It's what we are asked to be about by our Lord. And he asked us to be like him in word and deed and his primary words and deeds were all about the kingdom. Our doctrine of evangelism doesn't determine God's plans for humankind. Our preaching doesn't decisively mark out who belongs to the kingdom of God and who doesn't. That's why I love that picture in the book of Revelation. I use it quite often in this congregation because you remind me of it wonderfully. That picture in Revelation of people coming from the east and the west and the north and the south and gathering as this great global community on the great plain before God and the Lamb and singing the praises of God. It's a wonderful picture but it's also a very challenging picture. Why? Because of the sheer range and variety of who's actually there. And they hold only one thing in common, they have made Jesus Christ their Lord and they've sought to follow him. And in so doing, they have connected themselves, mind, body and soul, to the purposes of the king and the purposes of his kingdom. Remember that old joke? where Jesus shows people round heaven and they come to a room with the door closed and he goes, shh, as you walk past. Why? Why do we need to be quiet? That's the strict and particular Methodists in there. They think they're the only ones here. You've heard it. Why does that that, uh, joke get constantly recycled? Because we recognize its fundamental truth. The kingdom of heaven is going to be full of people whose faces we know. And many of us who have lost loved ones are so looking forward to the fact that somehow, in some way not fully known, but in a a trust wholly hoped for, we will somehow be reunited with them. But the kingdom of heaven is also going to be full of people that we don't know. We'll go into space after space, if heaven is space at all, and possibly even be askance. Martin will be nudging Tony if we get there. And I'll be saying, who oh, let that lot in? <laughs> and Jesus, the Lord in heaven, the Lord of heaven and earth, will turn round to Martin and Tony. He'll say, they're here because I invited them too. And almost in brackets, what's it going to do with you? So it's God's kingdom, and therefore the kingdom of God, the church is God's, not ours, and therefore the membership of the kingdom is God's choice, not our choice. And the next part of the thinking is therefore, so if it's God's kingdom, those who are in the kingdom of God are expected to live according to the laws of the kingdom of God. This is not a laissez-faire market economy, this is God's kingdom. So the story of the prodigal son, great story, we didn't choose it today, we could have done, you know it, many of you backwards. Some of you don't, I apologize for the assumption, but those of you who do, great story. Son goes away, comes back, throws the party, good news for everybody except the fatted calf, which gets done away with. (laughs) And there's a big party and it goes on late into the night and into the early hours of the morning and the son sleeps in his own room for the first time in goodness knows how long. And that's where the story ends. Except if you were to read on a little bit in the lines that aren't there, At 6.45 the following morning, father knocks on the door, opens it and says, up, it's time for work. Because the prodigal son hasn't returned to endless partying. He's returned to live in his father's house. And in his father's house, there are rules and regulations. Repent and believe the good news, says Jesus. He doesn't say like it. He says repent and live in it. In in the last days of the life of my dear old dad he used a stick. It was one of those telescopic ones you know the 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 black ones where you sort of push a button and it comes out and, and then you can't it's like an umbrella you can't get it down again. And I remember helping him in and out of the car And the number of times that he'd lengthen it or shorten it or it would get stuck in the car door. And he said to me uh, and anybody in the car, I hate this stick. And then there'd be a pause. And he'd say, but it stops me from falling over. God doesn't say, I love you and I will receive you into my kingdom full stop. God says, I love you and I will receive you into my kingdom. Now here's the deal of living in the kingdom. The declaration of God's love, the initial realization of God's saving grace is a beginning. It's not an end. There's always something more. That's why we talk so much in this church and so many others about the importance of growth in the spirit. The importance of personal and societal renewal. The importance of prayer and more of it. The importance of better Bible study. The importance of godly worship. The importance of deeper sacramentality. But you know there's even more. The first verse of the hymn we sang before this sermon started four and a half years ago it must seem like now. The kingdom of God is justice and joy. Which is where late in the day, I know, I'm fi- almost finished, I turn briefly to the Beatitudes, that statement in Matthew's gospel, the start of the Sermon on the Mount. And I note what the Beatitudes say about what God's kingdom is like and what God's kingdom people are like. And today with the world as it is, with our country at this point in time it is, with the Christian church as it is, with you and me as we are, there seems to be a great need for us to strive to be kingdom beatitude type people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled, and and so on. In the medieval times, there were many models of the kingdom, but two key models of the Christian kingdom, Christendom. And the time of the cru- Crusades, particularly the first three Crusades, uh, gave a graphic illustration of these two kinds of understandings of God's kingdom. The first was in the Crusades themselves, where the Pope of the day wrote to Christians throughout the known world and said, rise up, take up arms, and rescue Jerusalem from the barbarous, ungodly hordes who have beset it, uh, and the history of the Crusades was born. It says, uh, the worst crusade, which is arguably the fourth, that rivers of blood ran for 30 miles on the road leading towards Jerusalem. So you've got one very graphic picture of God's kingdom. But if you read the story of one of the monastic orders, and particularly a person called Ramon Lull, L-U-L-L, who was high up in this order. He used to accompany, almost as kind of Pacific, non-fighting forces, the villages that the army had gone through. That had raped and pillaged and left whatever it was. And that group occupied the mess and the hell of these kingdom fighters and sought to be beatitude people. So if we were making a film of it today with the fantastic images and. uh, that we get with CGI and and the wonder of of film technology. You'd see these hordes going up the street or this dusty road and you'd see the pittedness and the blood runningness of all their armor and the red crosses across the front and the banners. And then you'd come back and you'd come back and you'd see the length of it and the extent of it. And then you'd shift across to a a completely devastated little town. And then you'd funnel in again with that until you could almost see the fly on the end of somebody's nose. And there would be another group of people who in the name of Christ are seeking to be kingdom people. So we're asked to choose which kind of God's kingdom we want to inhabit. Which of those two images, I know it's a silly question, I've loaded it, haven't I? But which one of those two images best resonates with Christ's teaching of the Kingdom of God? John Wesley, second time today, you're doing well, once famously said this, finishing here, give me 100 people. Who fear nothing but sin, desire nothing but God, and I care not whether they be clergy or laity. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. So I close with this How do I, little me, help bring the kingdom of God on earth? First, I need to place myself under Christ's lordship because he is king for the first or the thousandth time. Second, I need to recognize that in doing so, I am co-opted to be a partner in making God's kingdom come now in my life where I am. And in order to do that, Third, I must recognize that it's God's kingdom, not mine, that the church I love and belong to is God's, not mine, that God is in charge of who comes into the kingdom and how, not me, and that it will be made clear how serious I am about all this by how readily I live according to the rules of the kingdom." To what extent I'm shaped by the teachings of Christ in word and deed. Nobody said it was easy. But there is no more significant or better challenge offered to a human being that will take them the rest of their lives to explore. Are you in? I do hope so. Amen.